Hello and welcome to Classroom 101, the podcast on all things education, from best practice to the very worst. I'm Andy Van Hayden, a journalist turned teacher. I created this podcast so that more educators could have access to the ideas and wisdom of our profession's greatest minds. In Classroom 101, we strive to improve education by calling out its least helpful terms, paradigms, systems or practices, suggesting better alternatives. Our guest this week is Emma Turner. Emma has been in primary education for more than two decades in a variety of roles, including class teacher, assistant head, deputy head, national numeracy strategy consultant and co-head teacher. She's now the CPD and research lead for Discovery Schools Academy Trust and the Affinity Teaching School Alliance. Now our interview is preceded by more than a couple of technological difficulties, but once we got going, Emma's wisdom and positivity made for a really interesting chat that I hope you'll enjoy as much as I did. So, without further ado, let's get on with the show. When education's in pretty bad shape, teachers are leaving on the planet and their escape. There's not enough time to teach the things you should. Time to banish education since you do it if you could. Time for Budget slashing everywhere the government insists it cares Are we raising quality with all the endless scrutiny? If you're hating league tables and those tablets able labels Time to save our education from self-imposed cremation Time for Classroom 101 Time for Classroom 101 Yeah, it's time for every teacher's favorite podcast Classroom 101 Classroom 101 Hi. So this is Peter after our technological hiccups. Oh, we've morning. had a fun, fun morning, haven't we? Always, always fun when me and tech are combined. It's like oil and water. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much for battling all of that to, to come onto the podcast. Your, your positivity is almost legendary. And so I can't wait to hear more of your great ideas and education. Oh, thank you. Before going any further, I should ask you just to take us through your career, if you don't mind, Emma. Okay. Well, originally I was going to be a doctor. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, and I worked, uh, I worked in the caring profession all the way through school and into university. I was, I was training, I did care assistant work because I was eventually going to go into medicine. Um, and then I was personally very ill during my A-levels. Um, had nearly a year out in a botched routine operation, so I missed most of my A-levels. My A-levels weren't as great as they were, they were predicted to be. Still wanted to do medicine, still had a place to go and um, study either phys- physiotherapy or medicine. I hadn't quite decided which one I was going to do. But then I had to do a one-year top-up at a university um, near London. So I went and did that. And then partway through that, I thought, I don't think I want to do this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, and I felt really bad because everybody had kind of moved heaven and earth for me to go and do um, medicine. And I thought, do you know what I really want to do? I, I so loved my own school career. I want to teach because um, I've done lots of work on play schemes and stuff um, also through university. So I moved universities and went up to Liverpool and I did a very strange course, which was a four-year course, which trained you to be a science teacher in key stage two and three. So oh. it was a four-year science course across two key stages. 
and you got QTS at the end of it as well. So I did four years worth of placements and this happened all over uh, Liverpool in some very challenging schools at the time. And then I came back to Leicester where I grew up and I've worked in Leicestershire, but only in primary since qualifying. Worked in lots of schools across the county, very different schools in terms of demographic intake, size. And then after I've been teaching for a while, became a local authority lead teacher for maths. And from that, um, applied to be a national strategy consultant for the area, which I did for a year and a half when it was the national strategy rollout. So that was absolutely fantastic. It meant I got some great national training and I went into so many schools, found out so much about different schools, how they work, how they operate. And then after that, there was a school in, in the local area that had been in special measures for ages absolutely ages and a colleague of mine who was a literacy strategy consultant went there to be the deputy head and I was thinking I really, really want to stay in consultancy for that long I got chatting to him and he said look there's some jobs coming up would you like to come and apply for one of the jobs here I think it'd be great for I'll have the literacy side you have the maths side so I applied for the job got the job and then stayed there which was my third school that I'd worked in for um Oh, 13 years. So I went from class teacher to assistant head, deputy head, and then formed one of the first all-female co-headships with Claire Mitchell, the wonderful Claire Mitchell, back <laughs> in um, 2009, was it? Yeah, 2009. So just over 10 years ago, it became formalised. We've been doing it a little bit before that. And then after 13 years at the same school, again, kind of got itchy feet, thought, mm, what can I do now? I'd also got three very small children at the time. And I thought, I, need to, I want to do something part-time. I want to do something that's really taps into what I'm really passionate about, which is uh, effective teacher CPD, because I've been doing a lot of CPD delivery, writing, research, whilst at my old school with Claire, through our work with our teaching school lines. And a job came up in uh, Discovery and Affinity, which was who we were uh, partners with. Went for the job, actually on my son's first birthday, <laughs> my youngest child's first birthday. <laughs> for you got the job and kind of never looked back really it's it's a wonderful wonderful role which means I get to work with NQTs right the way through to uh, head teachers CEOs other trusts across the, the local area and I get to basically do what I love which is researching writing delivering working with teachers on the front line every day in all of our schools and it's just the best job it's fabulous really really a privilege basically wow what an interesting role. Can you explain how you're working with everyone from head teachers to new teachers? I had an image of your role being very much with NQTs, RQTs. <laughs> um, well, what I do loads of research in different areas. Hmm. I kind of pull it all together and collate it. And a lot of the work that I will do then with the head teachers is uh, briefing meetings or training meetings so that they don't have to spend hours and hours and hours trawling, collating, distilling all that information. So I work with them. Um, on developing their own kind of knowledge banks research I'm really fortunate in that all of the head teachers in our trust they're so research driven they are really really dedicated professionals um, and so it's a, they're a delight to work with because they're so open to, to listening to research and to discussing it and to, to thinking what really fits the needs of our trust in our school um, I also, we also work with lots of other teaching schools. We work with Inspiring Leaders. And this year at the Inspiring Leaders Conference, I'm leading a workshop 
on cognitive science and the curriculum um, with one of colleagues from um, one of the Nottingham teaching schools. So we'll be delivering to head senior leaders there. So I don't necessarily train our head teachers. Um, what I tend to do is to uh, keep them up to speed and to save them uh, a bit of time uh, and present strands or themes for them to then roll out back in school. So keeping them up to date at their head, head teacher network meetings. And then I work with our, I run our NQT and recently qualified teacher provision as well through our programme. We've always run a two year programme where you don't just get training in your NQT year, you get it over two years to recognise that really kind of steep uh, rate of learning that goes on as, a, as an early career teacher. It's basically a little bit of everything. <laughs> it really is, isn't it? It's like an, yes. uh, a chocolate assortment box of CPD that you offer. <laughs> <laughs> Brittle, I'm all right. <laughs> <laughs> and what would you say has been the hardest part of that long journey that you just described? Oh gosh, it was very difficult joining a school that was in had been languishing in a category for a long time. Um, mm. Morale morale was very low. Um, people were ground down. Uh, luckily, the trust in the school from the community was still there. They, they still believed in the staff and were really championing the school, which was great. Don't know quite how that would have worked if the community hadn't been so behind the school. But there was, it was so difficult to get people on board with yet more change, yet more improvement. That, that was the hardest part. And there were some difficult decisions that needed to be made at the time. And people were having to work a ridiculous amount. It was just, uh, it was unsustainable, but uh, it was to get over a, a hurdle. And the day that we came out of the category was just the best day. It was what the school and the community and people just deserved. They did not deserve, and neither did the staff, to be in that category for that long with that amount of effort and that amount of skill. Um, so that was a really tough time. Um, now, I know you've spoken about this a number of times, but would you tell us a little bit about co-headship, where that idea first arrived and how you made it work? Yeah, it's, it kind of arrived by chance, really, because our head teacher left mid-year and Claire was working in year two, I was in year six, and we were both deputies. And, and Claire had not long been appointed to deputy, so hadn't done MPQH or anything like that. And it was at the time when you needed MPQH to be a teacher. Hmm. And I thought, I'd recently done mine, but I was literally due to start IVF a couple of weeks later. So when the head left, um, I was kind of like, well, I could take it on. However, fingers crossed, I won't be here. So, you know, I... I didn't want to take it on and then have to go. And then Claire couldn't do it at the time because uh, she hadn't got MPQH. So we kind of had a chat with the governors and said, we don't want to do it uh, independently. Could we possibly do it together? And it was at the time just our normal proposal, a normal solution to a problem that we saw. We didn't realise at the time that it was anything particularly groundbreaking or different anything like that it was just us both not wanting to come out of the classroom because we're thinking right we've lost the head um if we're stepping up you're losing losing a lot of deputy time we hadn't got anybody necessarily to replace the deputy layer because we'd got very young staff at the time very inexperienced staff um, and there just wasn't anybody who wanted to or was potentially ready to step up 
And then, uh, because I was in year six and I was in year two, and closing year two, I'm like, oh my God, we can't use, lose the year six teacher and the year three teacher. <laughs> like yeah. So co headship just seemed to be a, a solution. So we, we did it informally for quite a while, and we faced everything from the local authority not having a drop down menu for how to pay us because co headship wasn't on there drop down menu let's sort of contest all of that and then there was the divvying up of who did what and then trying to explain to the community and to the staff and um, the, the pupils didn't give a monkeys they were just like oh I'm just going this turn and that's fine um that so used to being the deputies mm. but it was it was an it was a very organic process in that we were kind of feeling our way through it and we didn't realize that as I say we were doing anything particularly spectacular or different it was just us getting on with the job of work that needed doing um, and then after a while we were still recruit attempting to recruit for a head and we, we just couldn't seem to find the right fit for our school every time anybody was coming round, we were thinking do you know what we could do a better job than they could you know they're, they're not saying the right things or they don't seem to be the right fit so we kind of went to the governors and said, if you'd have us, we wouldn't actually mind doing this as a long-term thing. Hmm. I'm so nervous presenting it to them. And then one of them just turned around and went, oh, about bloody time. <laughs> so uh, it, we became substantive co-heads. It, it was a very organic process. And, and we're yeah. lucky enough now that people actually come to us to ask us about it because as I said, we didn't perceive that we were doing anything particularly fabulous, but it's so nice now to actually be able to support other people developing those roles or going into those roles. So, you know, we did it, we set it up a long time ago. We did it for eight years. Here's some things you might need to be aware of. Here's some things that, you know, might be hiccups. These are things that work well. Um, because actually, the more that we think about it, the more co-headship is a strength of a school and provides so much flexibility, opportunities for people to uh, gain leadership experience if somebody wants a sabbatical or reduce their days. Um, when one or both of us had babies or had caring commitments at home or things that changed in our lives, there was the flexibility there for us to up or down our days and to move things around. It's such a great model. And applying it to things like people retiring and wanting to reduce the number of days and giving other people the chance to step up and to kind of try headship, it's mm. it's such an untapped model that people need to kind of really embrace and i'm so pleased that so many schools and so many local authorities are seeing the benefits of it now is it on, is it on the increase oh yeah definitely and if mm. you if you follow um people like shared headship network on twitter and flex teacher talent and women ed there there are so many case studies now of where it's working really well not only at headship level but at other senior level posts as well as class teachers because we tended to see um, job sharing, especially in primary, as a class teacher's mm. role and, and nothing else. And we, Claire and I were so pleased that now um, a precedent has been set, not just with us, but other co-head co colleagues around the country, um, for actually saying you can do leadership and do it really well and do it on a part-time basis. And at Claire's school now, at the school I was at, um, most of their senior roles now are part-time and they're looking at potentially up to 75% of all the workforce at Clare School working flexibly and working part-time. It does work. Yeah. Um, there are more benefits than there are challenges. It's just seeing it slightly differently. Fascinating. Thank you. What an interesting journey you've had. Thank you.
Moving into Classroom 101, we strive to improve education by calling out its least helpful terms, paradigms, systems or practices, suggesting alternatives. So Emma, what would you yeah. send away to Classroom 101 if you could? Oh, I would send away high stake data, including, mm -hmm. school, including school gradings. I'm, I'm not saying that we shouldn't assess the quality of teaching and learning or we shouldn't assess the quality of educational provision or there shouldn't be an accountability measure. But I would send in the way that data is used. The fact that we have numbers and numerical values attached to children and things that tell them they've not met a required standard that's sent home to them i just think it's it can dis completely destroy a child's motivation it can destroy a teacher it can destroy a school yes there needs to be accountability yes there needs to be measures of the effectiveness of teaching and learning but not at the expense of it becoming so high stakes that other things are swept out i mean um, I remember when we used to have to do the science SATs, mm. um, English, Math and Science, and I remember that the Year 6 curriculum was very heavily English, Math and Science because it was high-stakes data. And then when the science test was removed nationally, all of a sudden, science kind of paled into insignificance and fell away because there's not that high-stakes number attached to it and i'm not saying bring back a test for everything and make everything high stakes but it's just if you're looking at curriculum provision and you're looking at a well-rounded education by making some things so high stakes in terms of the way that schools are judged and individual teachers are judged and when people link it to performance management it's it narrows the curriculum it narrows the provision it makes people uh, it makes some teachers feel so much pressure that they pour all their efforts into one or two particular children just to get them through. But I mean, I've heard it um, described as the largest number of children through the smallest hoop you can get, rather than looking at a broad and balanced provision. And I'm really pleased that now, as a profession, we're talking more about curriculum and more about provision and more about balance and less about these the high stakes numerical data. And I talked in the Carpool for School interview about um, hard outcomes, soft outcomes. And I talked about the fact that data is, is kind of a hard outcome, a measurable outcome. But I don't like the term soft data because soft outcomes, uh, yeah. because for the children that they are applicable to or the families that they are affecting, they are anything but soft. They're completely life changing. A change in confidence or a change in attendance um, or uh, attitude towards attendance, a change in the ability to speak in front of class or to form friendships and bonds. It, they're not soft outcomes. They are absolutely life changing for children, but yet they aren't measured necessarily. And it just drives me daft as well with school gradings. When you see those banners outside schools that say, we are outstanding, we are this. And especially for an outstanding school that may well have not been inspected for many, many years. It may not have the same head, the same setup, the same staff, the same intake even. And yet the banner is still there, provision is left unchallenged. And all those schools who are great, good schools who can't put that banner on that on their school, not that that should be the wish of them, but you know, they may well actually be achieving amazing things, much stronger and much um, broader than that one school that has the banner. But because there's 
parental sort of satisfaction and things tied to Ofsted gradings, they become immensely high stakes. I mean, I look at estate agents' details, and in estate agent details, it will say, within catchment for the outstanding school. You think this is actually affecting house prices? This is nuts. When you know, when when data that schools use and high stakes gradings are used and it's affecting the cost of the house you buy, it's beyond crackers. Yeah. <laughs> high stakes data and high stakes Ofsted school gradings and the use of, and the way those are used are what I would put in. And obviously we do need to measure the effectiveness of what we do, but don't then use it as a stick to beat people with or a tool for estate agents to boost their sales. <laughs> <laughs> so take me through um, what you would do instead. So instead of the gradings, how you might change, say, the inspection process, and then right down to what you talked about with the effect on pupils and them going home with grades of expected or not. I was thinking about this the other day and kind of was thinking about in my utopia, <laughs> what would I do with school inspections? Um, and I do think there needs to be a kind of, yes, this is this, you know what I'm doing safeguarding now, it's either like a pass or a fail. Mm. Um, but yes, this school is providing good value for money, it's providing good education. And then you could just have a list of, this is what this school does really well, this is what this school might want to explore further. You know, that's it. Mm. There is no point about saying, this school is outstanding, this one's good, this one's not, you know, this one's inadequate. It's so damaging for a school to have a label attached to it. But what if you're talking about a developmental process, it would be, yep, yeah, this is this school's great. Um, this is these are some things that they do that are absolutely fantastic. And here are some of the things that they that they are currently working on. Mm. You know, you know, not you must do this kind of thing. But if you're if you're a head that's got a really good handle on what your school needs and requires and you work with other leaders and you're outward facing and you're um, au fait with the, the research into best practice you know what your school needs to do mm. you know you know how to develop and you've, you've got that vision of where you want to take it and it can be so damaging to have something else attached to that so I'm not saying it's a pass or fail system but it would be really nice to say instead this is what this school does really well this is what this school is working on mm. and, and the, the kind of no concerns <laughs> Proponents of the current system might say, well, what about the schools who are providing, say, a really poor education at this moment? Will it be enough to say, well, here are a few things you're doing well, and here's a list of things you need to improve? Could that lead to a decline in standards? What would you do with the schools that need the most help? Having worked in a special measures school for yeah. uh, school that was in a category for um, a long time, when it was languishing, it was so unhelpful to constantly be told, this is where you are, this is where you are. It's like, we know, we know what's wrong with this. We don't need to beat us with it. Um, and so working with other partners, having advice, having a really clear action plan and, and working with that action plan was really useful. It was the actual work in improving, not the proving that we were working. Mm. Um, it was kind of working to improve, not proving that you're working. That was that was the difference. And the number of times that we had to just document everything and provide evidence in 15 different ways, it was such a waste of time. So actually, if you're in a school that is really, really poor, most of the time you know it, or the staff know it, 
or the community knows it, there are very few schools, I think, where they are, you know, they think they're absolutely blooming marvellous and they're horrendous. Mm. Um, and also, there are very few schools who are actually really horrendous who don't know there's a big job of work to do. Hmm. So I think that it's like somebody coming in when you're drowning and go, you're drowning, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> okay, so, so you're talking about offering some provision to support those schools. Yeah. I mean, Jeremy Hannay talks a lot about this and how in on, Ontario, in Canada, where he has experience at school in the kind of position we're talking about, would have a lot of money put in and support and experts available. Yeah, some of the best CPD and advice that we had when we were in a school that was in the category was from existing practicing teachers and head teachers in schools that were really successful, but who were in a similar, of a similar size, of a similar intake, of a similar situation. Yeah. And we were, we were lucky enough to work with a lady who um, was a head, she's now then an NNE and now she's an HMI inspector, who was just so helpful. Her school was unbelievably brilliant and she took the time to walk staff through stuff to be really realistic because she was doing that job at the time and could, and could transfer things straight up and she'd go do you know what this bit wouldn't work here yet or this bit you can do but you need to do this bit first and it was the fact that she was she could recognize the unique nature of our school and of her own school she could identify the transferable bits and she could support the school out of there some of the least support uh, supportive things that we had were people who weren't based in school coming in and going, oh, you need to do this, you need to fill in this form, you need to do it like that. And they just think, oh, God, really? It, it, it's not helpful. You, you need somebody to say, do it like this, this will work, and then do that, when, you know, when you're really in the, in the thick of it. But using your networks of people that you knew worked in similar situations or run particular projects in, in similar schools was really useful in helping us to move the school forward. Mm. Collaboration was key. Yeah, it was definitely key. Okay, thank you. So high stakes data then and gone. offset gradings gone. <laughs> high stakes offset gradings was when they're used for, to push up house prices and... Um, and end up on banners. Yeah, and when they're not up to date, when mm. inspected for umpteen million years, and they don't—they bear no resemblance to the school was it, that was inspected on that day when they got the outstanding. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Okay, should we move on to the next item? Yeah. What would you like to throw into classroom one hundred and one next? Oh, my next one. Now this one—it might seem a little bit kind of left field, really. It's teaching and teachers who conflate humour with. Uh, a lack of professionalism. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, a really interesting one. Tell, tell us yeah. more. Yeah. Um, and I know humour is a subjective thing and everybody's got their own sense of humour. But it, I suppose it's more about positivity than humour. Um, when Claire and I were co-heads, obviously we were kind of feeling our way through a lot of what we were doing. It's all new and nobody had ever done it before. So we hadn't really got a point of reference apart from each other. And the times we would just absolutely die laughing just at, at stuff it was just ridiculous and you get to the point where you're so tired and so stressed become slightly manic and everything becomes hilarious and everybody's been in that situation where you just you can't breathe when you're laughing and, you know she and I are both very much what I would refer to as marigolds if you've read Jennifer Gonzalez's cult of pedagogy when she talks about marigolds and nut trees 
some people are just um, naturally more buoyant, shall we mm. say, and, and look for the humour in things, look for the funny side, look for the positivity. And I've been in so many meetings over the years in different roles, in different scenarios, where some people are so deadly poker-faced all the time. And if you dare to say anything light-hearted or funny or flippant or... They look at you like you've just started, you know, doing line dancing at a graveside, you know. And yes, we have an important job of work to do as educators. Yes, it's serious. We're dealing with children's future outcomes. We are dealing often with um, safeguarding issues, especially in leadership. We are dealing with, you know, future academic success of our children. But we don't need to take our professional lead from uh, the demeanour of a funeral director. You know, we... We work with young children, young people who are naturally fun and cheerful and laugh far more than an adult does. And I think I can't remember the exact figures for the difference between how many times a child laughs a day and an adult laughs a day. And I just absolutely loved being in primary schools for all those years that they are children are a constant source of joy, a constant source of humour. And I used to laugh all day but then when you translate that into meetings or dealings with other people and one thing i've found as, a, as i've got older gosh i sound so <laughs> is that i've stopped pretending to be super serious all the time and i've just thought well you know this is me i'm gonna say it if you don't like it well never mind <laughs> and, and then i met people like ray snape who who's just like my spirit guru who is the same who just sees the joy and the fun in everything and just because something's fun doesn't mean it's unprofessional now i'm not talking about walking into a meeting but dressed as a clown or just you know <laughs> and or just making jokes and cracking jokes through what you know like a safeguarding meeting or something but it's recognizing that we work in a joyful profession a lot of the time and when i started writing for the ts one of the things that one of the editors, one of the people I sort of sent my articles to said was, we really like reading yours because they are about joy. And they said, can you carry on writing about finding the joy in education? And it's so important to find mm. that and to laugh and to enjoy what we do. And very often people will say that your classroom is a mirror of yourself. So if you are super serious and stern and miserable, then your class are going to be like that. If you are joyful and fun and vibrant and positive and laugh at loads of things, then the children will enjoy what they're doing. And I'm not about conflating fun and engagement. I'm not getting into that conversation. <laughs> it's just recognising that, yes, we do an important job. But just because you laugh and just because you're cheerful and just because you're self-deprecating does not mean in any way that you haven't got the knowledge or that you aren't professional and it just mm. it just annoys me when i go into gray meetings full of gray people <laughs> with, you know wearing gray clothes talking about gray things yeah <laughs> you can be taking your business seriously without having to be serious all the time yes, yeah exactly and and one of the things i truly miss about latimer working there was it was just so much fun everybody laughed and everybody joked all day and it was almost the crazier it got the funnier everything was and it's 
you know, it's a great school run by a great team of leaders there with an amazing catchment and amazing staff. And one of the reasons they are so great there is because they just find the fun and the humour in everything. And, and it still amazes me when I go into some schools meetings or, or conferences, especially, and everyone's so serious. So, yeah, so <laughs> yeah, focused. And yes, you can focus, but you can also smile. <laughs> Your two points, your first two items for Classroom 101, they do have a link in a way because you could say that the first point that you made influences the second point. The high stakes puts that pressure that filters down. And would you say, therefore, it's very important for leaders, particularly head teachers, to be gatekeepers so that any pressure from the high stakes doesn't filter down and their staff can feel that they can have that joy and show that joy you need to protect your staff and you need to be realistic you need to share the headline data with them but it's your job to ensure that they are not um shackled by the stress mm. of leadership issues that should be landing on your lap because they are doing a separate job which is the, the frontline teaching of the children in the classes and that needs to be their focus and yes the focus needs to be on improving teaching and learning and we can all improve all of the time. But people shouldn't be thinking whilst they're teaching, oh, I've got to get this child to there because if not, then it's not green on my spreadsheet. They should be thinking, I need to get this child to here because that's what they need and that's their next step and that's what they would you know, benefit most from and that would support their understanding. Not a, a reductive process where you're teaching becomes all about the data your teaching should be about developing um, a love of learning and deep knowledge and deep understanding of retention of key concepts and uh, a want to kind of understand the world in which they live not about how many children you can get green on, mm -hmm. on a spreadsheet and yes leaders do have a massive responsibility to protect the staff and by ultimately protecting staff they're protecting and ring fencing the quality education that the children will get because you set the weather in your classroom if you're stressed and if you're um you know if your mind is elsewhere you're going to be short you're going to be snappy with the children you're going to be focused on the things that they don't necessarily need but what you're being you know you're under the cosh for so yes, leaders do need to protect their staff, but by protecting their staff, they're actually protecting the quality of education in, in the classroom for the children. And that's your ultimate goal as a leader, is to ensure the experience of the children in those classes get is of the highest quality. And, you know, if we're not doing that, we're not being <laughs> and, and in terms of practically how you do that, if we talk on a, on a macro scale about, you were saying, as a head teacher, if your school's struggling, you don't need to have somebody come in and say, you're struggling, by the way. Yeah. Um, on, a, on a more micro scale, as you head teacher to your staff, what do you think of the monitoring processes, things like book scrutinies and learning walks and uh, observations, lesson observations? Do you have particular views on those and how, how they affect teachers? I think it depends on the culture of each school. Mm -hmm. um, some schools are very open they don't mind who sees what, where and when. Um, and I mean, Claire and I were constantly in people's classrooms, uh, partly because I used to, uh, you won't believe this, but I have a very short attention span. <laughs> um, and I used to be working on something in my office and I'd just think, oh, I need to get out of here. 
So I'd just go knit into foundation for a bit, talk to the kids or I'd have a wander around the school and you know, get involved with something. And that wasn't necessarily anything out of the ordinary. I could go into another school and do that and everybody would freak out because they would think it was some kind of learning walk. When actually it was just me being bored for 10 minutes, needing a change of scene and stretch my legs and loving what was going on in the school and wanting to be part of it and wanting to be present. Um, and yes, there's a time and place for kind of formal looks at, at how well the school is, is going, uh, you know, a chance for subject leaders to really get to grips with what the outcomes in their subject are in, a, you know, in other year groups, a chance for um, early career teachers to observe experienced colleagues, a chance for middle leaders to get involved in supporting colleagues, a chance for head teachers to actually speak confidently about the quality of teaching in their lessons because you know when somebody come, external comes in and says you know take me to see your best teaching in the school if you go well i'm sorry i, I don't believe in, <laughs> in learning walks i haven't done any i don't know <laughs> you, you've got to have something that tells you as a leader how well you're doing you, you've got to kind of know broadly um well not broadly you have to go know in detail really, about what's going on in your school but it's the again it's stakes it's, mm. it's how much you set by what you know by what you do um i mean it was it was not unheard of for claire or i to completely get involved in the lesson or start singing and dancing and you know joining in with everything but that was because it wasn't that culture in the school to be kind of closed door and high stakes and when we did look at things we often looked at them as a whole staff so we'd get all the books out for every subject, for every year group, put them all in the hall and we'd all have a look and we'd all kind of, oh, and it was so useful because then the year three teacher can see how their books fit in with the year twos and the year fours. And, you know, it's, it's a really useful exercise rather than one person sitting there with a big pile of books, scrutinizing them and giving feedback. It's, it's about dialogue, it's about collaboration, it's about openness, and then it's not about using what you find as a stick to beat people with. Mm. It's about using the evidence that's there on a day-to-day -day basis to inform your judgments to think, do you know what, we're doing this really well, but we actually need to move on, move our thinking on, and move our practice on in this particular area. So you can't necessarily say, you know, book looks or book scrutins, whatever we call them, are bad. Or learning walks are bad it's more about the culture you create for the way that you monitor what goes on in your school and having conversations about outcomes and moderations and everything in in groups regularly means that you're constantly having those conversations and it doesn't become a oh my god it's, it's monitoring week i must you know go back through my books and mark them i know i'm looking for however long. it's just it's just nuts so it's not about um the, the the individual processes per se it's more about the culture that you create and the the um the weighting that you attach to the outcomes of those things because the other thing is, is if you're doing a work scrutiny and if you're doing learning walks whatever there shouldn't be any surprises uh. if if you know your school really well you know you shouldn't be thinking oh yeah the year five teacher's amazing and then walk in there and go <gasps> What's going on here? This is not what I expected. You know, there, should, there should be a no surprises culture, and you only get that from having open discussions all the time, not periods of intense monitoring where you know you then high stakes day to start beating people with it. Um, thank you, Emma. Right, let's move on to the third and final item. 
Yeah. What are you banishing finally? I'm banishing a lack of complementary understanding between key stages. Um, mm. The reason, partly born out of uh, a recent experience with my son's nursery, which I must say is an amazing nursery. It's absolutely fantastic. It is brilliant. I can't praise it highly enough. But they're obviously feeling the pressure of school readiness. And he came home from his trial in the final room there and he went, Mummy, I don't like learning anymore. I was like, why? It's because they make you sit there and hold a pen and write and colour. How old is he again? He's three. Three three years, three months. I said, what do you like doing? What do you like doing then? He went, I like running outside and going on the bikes and I like playing. And my heart just sank. And it's the same kind of sinking that I used to feel as a year six teacher when we worked with secondary colleagues and as i said i before i did this weird course where i did like key stage two and three and at my old school we used to have an amazing absolutely brilliant year seven head and she'd been doing the job for donkey's years and she knew every child in the village every family she knew it and you'd sit down and you do the transfer with her and she'd say oh yeah i know so and so that's josh's brother or that's you know Sarah's sister, he'd be like, yeah, 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 and then she'd say, is she a great violinist like she was? And be like, no, she's a great runner, or, you know, she, you know, and there was just this real shared understanding of uh, the importance of a great transition, and, and she would talk to me about who might need a little bit more uh, extra transition, like time, extra visits, and support from the Senko, who, who was going to take to it like a duck to water, who, you know, which, with any conflicts with families or this business. She was just brilliant. And then she retired and the role was handed over to um, a teacher in the school. And he emailed me, he said, I'm not going to do school visits anymore. Can you fill in this spreadsheet and send it back? And it was basically grading the children from A to E and then another grade of one to five. One was attitude and another one was attainment. And I phoned the head and I went nuts. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, what are you doing? do you know about this and he was like oh well we're just we're just trialing something and i went absolutely bonkers and i said look do you want to come down and see our year six kids do you want to bring your staff and have a look um and he said oh that's really interesting i'll I'll come down and the head was a great head he was was a fabulous head and i was was when i was doing co-headship and still teaching in year six and so I, i got him down and i did a maths lesson and he watched it and at the end of it he went we're really failing these kids. And I said, what do you mean? He said, I had absolutely no idea that this is the kind of thing that they were capable of at year six. And he said, and I'm not entirely sure that all of my staff understand that either. And I said, right, well, let's, let's put a transition experience in place. Let's look at transition because I know I've not got it right in my end. I know that I'll be sending up children that are deficit in things that you would be desperate for them to be competent in. So let's have this as a, a learning experience. So the year seven teachers came down from the core subjects and watched me teach my class. And we had lots of discussions afterwards. And then I would go up in the September and follow my class up and I watched them teach um, a few lessons there. And then the most powerful thing that we did was we got the head teacher of their new high school and my old year sixes and me and it was in the school library at the secondary school and we talked about 
how they felt in terms of how well pitched the work was, what it felt like on that first day. And the head teacher sat at the back of the room and I sat at the front of the room with them. And he said, I had no idea that they felt like that because every time we ask them how they're doing, they say they're fine. And, and what did they say? The work was too easy, mm. they'd done it before, they were confused about what they were meant to be doing, um, they couldn't find their way around the school properly, they were worried, they, they were, you know, loads of stuff that they obviously didn't want to admit and they were saying, you know, the first three weeks all we've done is exactly what we've done before in year four, you know, in some classes um, and they were talking about some of them liked being set, some of them didn't like being set. And the head teacher said it was just the most amazing experience to see them open up to their primary school teacher because you obviously have a completely different relationship at primary with children mm. than we necessarily have at secondary. And yes, children need to move on, and yes, children need to be, you know, they need to fit into the secondary sort of system and the secondary slot. And I'm not saying that I was perfect and our system was perfect, but what was really illuminating was the conversation that went on between Key Stage 2 and Key Stage 3 colleagues. And it really shone a light on understanding what Key Stage 3 colleagues did, how they taught, what they, what they wanted their children to be ready to do, and also an understanding of where the children had come from. And in turn, from a primary perspective, it gave me a really good understanding of where, what they needed to be ready for, what their challenges might be, how they might raise those challenges or concerns or worries when they got up to the secondary school so they didn't feel like they just had to say, fine, 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 I'm all right. And it was, it was just a really great process to work with cross phases. And I don't necessarily think that cross phase, either from nursery settings to schools, is licked yet neither do I think it's licked from six to seven and I think the more we understand the work of the phases that go on prior to us and post us the stronger our provision will be for the children that we currently teach mm. even even in terms of understanding the curriculum how many primary teachers understand what's in the year seven and eight you know curriculum mm. um, and it's it's not necessarily that we all should suddenly rush out and find out. But actually, having an appreciation of where you're trying to get the children to is so important in understanding your piece in the jigsaw. This, the uniqueness and, and specialness of that, but also have a massive appreciation of where children have come from and where they're going to in terms of their faces. And I think that as a profession, we don't have as much understanding of what each other does mm. that, that, that we could have. Do we know where we're trying to get our children from and to all the time? Or are we just in these kind of little bubbles of doing a topic, which drives me insane, by the way. We don't do topics. And, and if you extrapolate that out, it's, it's understanding what goes on and how the pedagogy is different, how the provision is different, how the um, content knowledge might be organised differently in those key stages. And it, it's working and seeking to work with providers from other key stages which will ultimately enhance what you're doing because it will give you a greater view of that educational journey for that child. Mm. And I think what most of what you're talking about Emma again falls on leaders doesn't it because if we take your example from your your son who's come home and said <laughs> I don't like learning yeah. really <laughs> that could of course I mean that must have it must have been sort of 
almost soul destroying to hear your you know your three-year-old son say that but that could well have all originated from a very well-meaning practitioner who thinks that they are doing the best to get him ready for the next stage it's not a race it's about Mm. doing things really well and preserving the specialness and the uniqueness of each individual step of that journey it's not about seeing children as ticks on spreadsheets or you know this percentage can do this early isn't it amazing they can do it early no i don't want them to do it early because they've got the rest of the blinking educational career to do it at the right time Mm. let's do the right thing at the right time for the children on that day not trying to race or or worse cherry pick the easy bits from the next phase to wedge into your phase to make it look like you're doing really well and i think particularly at eyfs level when you're seeing this kind of rushing for me it really hits home when you compare it to other countries where at that age they're not even in school yet and well, yet sorry my family's from estonia oh okay <laughs> estonia, they don't go to school till they're seven my family mm. are absolutely appalled appalled that my children were in school before seven they, they just can't compute it at all right. and yes they go, they go to like a kindergarten and preschool and everything but actually to sit down and do formal schooling is completely abhorrent so I kind of have to, it's the law, they don't have to go, you know. <laughs> uh, EYFS is so special and so different and so important. And I mean, I remember people saying to me years ago, oh, I couldn't do an EYFS, it's all sandpit finger painting. And you just, oh. you're like, really? Is that really, as an educator, what you think EYFS do? Mm. Yeah, and it's such an important phase. There's a reason it's called foundation stage because if you get the foundations wrong, the whole thing falls to bits. Um, and I was talking to uh, Mark McCourt recently at a conference, and he was saying about the importance of really skilled foundation stage teachers. And I, I, yes, somebody's like air punching. I've been saying this for ages. Yes, the teams are just—they are magic. They're absolute magic. And if they get that right and the children get a proper foundation, the rest of the schooling just kind of clicks into place. It's, it's so important. And then to, to diminish that by saying you've got to do more school-based stuff in foundation stage, it just makes a mockery of the whole thing. EYFS is special and it's brilliant. And, and we shouldn't be forcing stuff into EYFS that doesn't benefit or, or fit with you know, research into child development. And, and also, they're in school for a hell of a long time. You know, there's a lot of years sat behind a desk. Don't do anything when they're that tiny. <laughs> Brilliant, Emma. Thank you. Really fascinating three items there for Classroom 101. So high stakes data, Ofsted grading, conflating a sense of humour with lack of professionalism, and yeah. then that lack of understanding between complementary key stages. Yeah. All into Classroom 101. Thank you. Hi there, Andy here. I hope you're enjoying the show. This is just a quick message to ask for your help. The aim of Classroom 101 is to support the wider sharing of ideas and wisdom in education. So if you like what you hear from Emma, I'd be really grateful if you could share this with others, whether verbally or via social media. You can tweet the show, Classroom 101 Pod, me at AndyVT101, and Emma will share her own details at the end of the episode too. The response to last week's episode with Jeremy Hannay has been truly wonderful. Thank you so much to the great many of you who've been commenting and sharing online, including Nikki Ball, 
Teach First Ambassadors, Maha Sheikh and Georgie at Just Teach UK, to name but a few. It really means a lot, so thank you. Lastly, just to say, if you like what you're hearing, click subscribe or follow on whichever platform you're using so we can start sending you updates when new episodes are released. Now, in the first series of Classroom 101, we'll be concluding each episode with three quick questions to get to know our guests a little better. So, let's get back to the show. What's your fondest educational memory? I think I'll go for when I was teaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was two, actually. The, okay. the, first, the first one was when I had uh, a year six class and I had a little boy in there with multiple special needs. And uh, he was autistic as well. And his mum had had a really bumpy road with him through the school. And he was just the most lovely boy to teach, lovely family, just amazing. And when we did the auditions for the school play, uh, the end of year school play, he he suddenly decided he wanted to be the handsome prince. And so uh, I said to mum, how do you think he cope on the stage you know and she said you know what he's not stopped talking about it he really wants to do it and so he learned his lines we adapted the script slightly because there were slightly too many lines for him to learn um and on that last day in year six he was the handsome prince his mum had made him like a proper outfit uniform with a little sword and everything and when he bent down he had to bend down and 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 this kiss for the uh, wake the sleeping princess and he did it and I remember turning around and his mum was absolutely sobbing absolutely mm. sobbing and at the end of the performance she came up and she went thank you so much she said I said thank you for believing that he could do it thank you for giving him the chance he he will never forget this and I will never ever forget this and it was just the it was just such a, an important moment for me because it was you know, it would have been really easy to just go, oh, he's not going to be able to cope with that. Let's just give it to somebody else. Um, or, mm. to say, or to give him a small kind of bit part. But it was the kind of, do you know what? Let's not, put, let's not put any limits on this child. If he wants to do it, let's just go for it. Let's adapt it. Let's, let's make it fit, you know, for him. And he had his moment on that stage and there was just kind of rapturous applause and the rest of the class was so supportive of him. And he was so proud of himself and his mum was so proud of him. And I, I will never, ever, ever forget that. And he was just oh. an amazing, amazing moment. And then in terms of teaching, there was, it was the year of the, the coalition, mm. which is, it coincided with our coalition, which is nice. And I was teaching in year six and I was fuming one day as I was driving up that there were BNP posters all over the houses in, in the catchment of our school. And I was absolutely livid. We were meant to be doing democracy and governance as one of our topics that term. So I threw out everything I was doing and we did the whole thing about the election. It was post that, sorry. We did the whole thing about the election and we got speakers in from all the major parties to come talk to the children. And our catchment had one of the highest degrees of political apathy and lack of voting in the area. And we did the whole topic on, on the, the election and we ended up watching the election results coming in live. And we talked about the coalition, it was all really exciting. And the children set up their own political parties for the local area with a certain amount of budget. And we had a political rally that they ran in the hall with their stalls and things. And all the local people came, you know, representatives of the local groups came and, and they voted for which group had done the best spending of this notion of budget. And it was all very lovely, it was a great topic. 
And at the, but the thing that made me remember it most was one of the little boys came up at the end of it, at the end of the, the term after the election. He said, do you know what? I said, I've been talking to my mum about this and she's never ever voted before in her life. And after I've done this at school, she's been and voted. <laughs> I was just like, that is why you become an educator, you know, because that's making a you difference. Never, never underestimate the reach of what you do. Mm. And it it was just a brilliant moment for me. <laughs> uh, two two wonderful moments, really wonderful. And I speak from experience as a former year six teacher. Some of my favourite moments of teaching related to class assemblies or end of year performances and seeing children yeah. do things that would have just defied belief if you knew them yeah. back in reception or or whatever. Yeah. So, um, thank you. What makes your family special to you? <laughs> Interesting one. Well, they're all crackers for a start. <laughs> um, they, uh, my family laughs all the time. It's just, you, you can't leave our house without having stomachache from not my cooking, but <laughs> it's just built on laughter and humour, which is interesting because my mum's family is a are Estonian they came over after the second world war when the allies gave Estonia back to the Soviets as part of the peace deal so we were basically displaced persons so mum's family grew up in in Leicestershire big Estonian community in Leicestershire and weirdly she went to the school where I ended up being head oh really <laughs> yeah but she went there as an, she went there as an EAL child you know, couldn't speak any English till she was seven um, had the most rotten time, which was one of the reasons I thought, you know, I'm really passionate about making this school amazing for every child who comes here. It was because I remember my mum, and do you remember her coming to look around the school and her just saying to me, I'm so proud of you. She said, it doesn't seem five minutes since I was here, scared, and now you're the head of this school. This is just brilliant. What um, a motivation to drive you. Sorry to jump in, but <laughs> a, lot, a lot of people talk about imagining every child right what if that was my son or daughter yeah. and that almost driving them and yeah. I guess you had in your mind well you know what if that was my mum yeah. yeah and I knew I knew it was and I knew she'd had a rotten time and I was just like every kid that you look at you just see it just resonated with with me that I was thinking you I don't want you to be like 40 50 years down the line holding your kid's hand and saying I had a terrible time at school you know mm. I want you to say I've had an amazing time at school mm. Um, so yeah, that's that's what makes it important. And my children are just I refer to them as the holy trinity of chaos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, they are two girls and a boy, right? Two girls and a boy, eight, five, and three. Um, and they're very special because my two girls were IVF babies. We tried for years and years and years to get them, and I did all the IVF for doing the co-headship and teaching and, and all sorts. So it was just a really kind of crazy time in my life. I remember doing the, um, the opening words and closing speech for the uh, nativity at Christmas one year, but I had to do what's called the trigger shot for IVF, where you have to inject yourself something at a certain time of day. So I to do the opening words, nip out, jab myself something, walk back in again, do the closing words. And I was talking, I put my hand in my pocket, and I realised I'd still got a syringe in my pocket whilst I was like, addressing the entire <laughs> local community. Yeah, they are... My two girls are very hard one, hard fought. Mm. Um, and my middle daughter was especially hard fought. She had the worst pregnancy with me ever. She was a twin. We lost her twin. 
uh, partway through the pregnancy, which made her very poorly. She was premature. She's had all sorts of issues going on, but she's an absolute joy, delight. And then I did this weird thing of accidentally getting pregnant at 40 with my third one. I'm not even realizing I was pregnant. So I was just said, um, I think I've spoken to you before about it earlier. Got buy two, get one free. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. So, very special children. Um, and a crackers family so and they've, they've been really supportive i was the first one in my family to go to university as well mm. and I remember on the day i graduated it was really windy so all of my graduation friends are like pavarotti because the gown just inflated <laughs> and i remember my dad looking at my teaching certificate and going you'll never go hungry with that now kid oh. he said, you'll never ever go hungry now you've got that and my parents didn't have a lot of money growing up and it was just a real moment for me that they'd supported me all the way through university. I was the first one I set in my family to go and definitely first girl to go. There was extended family in Australia where the boys had gone, but I was the first girl ever to go. I'll never forget that day. My dad was so proud. So yeah, amazingly supportive family. Wow. Supportive family and what a sort of story and journey that you, you've been through. Um, <laughs> amazing. Let's move on to the final question. Who was your favourite teacher growing up? Oh, this is an easy one. Yeah. Um, Mr. Picard. Um, Mr. Picard was a ferocious man, but an amazing scientist and made everybody believe they could be a scientist. And as a little kind of 10-year-old girl in the 80s who was fascinated by science but never even considered themselves having a career in science, being in his lessons was just like being in some kind of magical world. He was so knowledgeable, so passionate, so brilliant at what he did. And he made everybody feel they had something to contribute to science. And as I say, he was ferocious. You never walked on the grass outside his science lab. He would lean out the window and yell, get my grass. And if you were naughty, you had, to, you had to scrape chewing gum off from underneath the science benches. There was always a queue of people at lunchtime wanting to come into his science lab just to do extra work and he would do everything from the photography and darkroom development to looking after ducks and raising ducks and growing crystals and dissecting eyeballs and dehydrating things and you know it was he was just magic and he loved his subject and he loved teaching even though he was a, a grumpy grumpy man <laughs> if you showed an interest in science he would just take you on the most wonderful journey and he was the reason that i chose to do science A-levels and to go into science, obviously because I initially wanted to go into medicine, but when I did my teaching, it was then science teaching that I went into. And mm. if you've read any book ever um, in education, read The Magic Weaving Business by Sir John Jones, and he talks in there about great teachers being magic weavers, mm. and to get back in touch with a magic weaver that you've had, which I did um, after reading it, I got in touch with Mr. Picard and he'd retired he was quite unwell but he remembered me and he not only remembered me he remembered every child from my year group he could tell us what we'd gone on to do he'd, he'd, he'd found out what we'd all done he really genuinely cared and i told him that i read this book and i told him that he was my favorite teacher ever and he was really pleased about it and then later i found out a few weeks later that he died and i was just so pleased that i'd spoken to him and told him that he was the reason I was now doing what I was doing because he was just a brilliant teacher. I don't know how well he'd go down teaching nowadays. 
but he was he is the reason I'm doing what I'm doing but that kind of care and passion is priceless isn't it and I'm so glad that you you did that and you did that in time yeah it's wonderful the magic the magic weaving business opened with a story that is exactly like that and I remember when I met Sir John Jones I had to introduce him at a conference and I told him that I'd done what he'd said in the book he said he said the number of people that have told me this he said it's just wonderful he said I I would encourage everybody to do it and so I would encourage everybody to do two things buy (laughs) the Sir John Jones book and then get in touch with your magic weaver because everybody's got one Mm. Well, funnily enough, I ordered that very book this week. So I've done the did first you? step. I did, yeah. It was maybe two days ago. Yeah. <laughs> I'll give you 20 quid if it's not the best book you've ever read. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Talk about putting your money where your mouth is. <laughs> Emma. <laughs> That's how confident you are. I'll give you 20 pence. <laughs> We'll definitely do a second podcast at some point and then I can I can tell you whether you owe me 20p. <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, thank you, Emma. Well, thank you for opening up so much about yourself personally as well as all your educational views. It's been fantastic speaking to you. Before we conclude, can I ask you a little bit about New Ed? Because that's one of your latest oh, projects, isn't it? Yeah. Um, New Ed is my work baby. And the reason I say it's my work baby is because it's not actually part of my job. It's just an idea I came up with after going to Brewhead Hearts, uh, where we were invited by Emma Kell. And it was just the most brilliant, brilliant CPD I've ever had in terms of networking, listening to different voices in education. It was just a magical day. Uh, and I went to a couple of others and I, I went to a women ed event and what have you. And then I thought, you know, I work a lot with early career teachers and I think they would really benefit from a specialised version of this kind of CPD um, aimed specifically at early career teachers and teachers who are training. And so I came up with New Ed and thought, oh, it sounds a little bit like Brewed. So I contacted Ed Finch, who runs Brewed, and said, would you mind if I birthed Brewed's baby? <laughs> <laughs> he, was, he was brilliantly supportive, really helpful. And then I contacted the Charter College and I contacted Sam Twisterton because I didn't want it to conflict with any guidance that was coming out about the early career framework or anything that the college might be doing. Hmm. They were both incredibly supportive, fully backed the event. Uh, Alison Peacock from the Charter College has come to speak at New Ed, as is Sam Twisterton, as are so many other amazing educators, Pam Patel, Ray Snape, Emma Kell, Adrian Bethune, Laura Knight, um, Sarah Mully. They're all coming along to contribute to New Ed. Now panicking because I'm thinking I might have left somebody off that list. If I, if I have, it's because I'm an idiot, not because I don't value their contribution. <laughs> the strap line is New Ed Joyful CPD for early career teachers because um, mm. your early career years are can be incredibly hard and tough and such a steep learning curve. Mm. So I just wanted to put on an event that celebrated teaching, that kind of talked up teaching and that gave early career teachers an opportunity to network that they might not ordinarily have mm. because senior leaders network all the time at all sorts of conferences and events and, and NQTs and early career teachers don't always have that same luxury so I wanted to provide that vehicle so if you google Eventbrite new ed joyful CPD it comes up straight away you can join the waitlist and as soon as we get enough people on the waitlist then we can move venues to a bigger venue because sold out a bit like Glastonbury it was like oh I didn't expect that (laughs) (laughs) and it's in Leicester isn't it remind us of the date it's on the 2nd of November 
mm-hmm. this academic year. And it is Saturdays, so that there's no worry about release time or what have you. I'm really pleased with how it's taken off. And it's, it is going to be rolled out nationally. There are going to be other new events coming up. It is going to be a big thing, but it's all kind of in the background and just starting up at the moment. But if you want to be say, if you want to say, I was there. I was at New Ed. The inaugural New Ed. I keep calling it that because if something's inaugural, then you've got to have another one. Yes. I don't know who I've forgotten. How could I forget? Carpool for school are coming on the day to be my roving reporters. They're going to be filming during the day, a little bit of co-hosting. And basically, they are just going to provide tons of joy as well as tons of wisdom because those guys are just hilarious. Oh, they're so much fun, aren't they? Brilliant. So you've talked about where to go if people want to sign up to New Ed. What about if they just want to speak to you or find out more about you? They can follow me on Twitter, Emma underscore Turner 75, which I rue the day I put that Twitter handle together because it obviously gives away my age. Bit of a giveaway. I'm going to change it to 85 and have a photo taken in some good lights. (laughs) Emma underscore Turner 75. I'm speaking at Women Ed in Sheffield in October. Obviously, you they can come and see me and get in touch. Um, you can contact me through the GEC as well and do some ambassadorial stuff. And Women Ed, or oh, Brewer Hearts, how can I forget? Brewer mm. Hearts, which I am attending on my first wedding anniversary. So <laughs> I know up. that. I know that because I tried to squish in this interview just after, wasn't it? And you said, no, I've got, I've got to dash off actually to see my, <laughs> see my husband at some point on my anniversary. <laughs> literally wedded to the job. (laughs) Emma, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and to hear your suggestions for improving our education system. Emma Turner, thank you for being our guest on Classroom 101. My pleasure, thank you. Have a lovely day and enjoy your classrooms. (laughs) (laughs) Education's in pretty bad shape Teachers are leaving on a plan and their escape There's not enough time to teach the things you should Time to banish education sense you do it if you could Time for Classroom 101 Time for Classroom